Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to Gethin Jones. Gethin shares how the justice system has been a part of his whole life. He walks us through his time in prison to where he is today, running his own consultancy called Unlocking Potential, which works towards improving outcomes for people in prison. My name is Gethin Jones. Uh, I've got a company called Unlocking Potential, and I work very much within prison reform uh, and trying to make it a bit fit for purpose for those that are within the criminal justice system at this time. And what led you into the work that you do today in the service? Um, well, I can't say that uh, I was born into it. Right. <laughs> it's been a part of my whole life, uh, so it's a natural uh, kind of progression. Uh, I didn't expect to be doing what it is that I'm doing now, uh, but, yeah, I've, I've always been linked to the system in one way or another, uh, you know, because uh, my, my family history is just linked to the system from pre-birth. Right, so it makes you well qualified to be. So why don't you um, start by telling us kind of what it is that you're doing with the probation and prison system at the minute and then we'll go back. Yeah, yeah, okay, no problem. So, uh, yeah, so I do a few different things at the moment. Uh, so uh, I actually still go and work and deliver stuff in prisons. Uh, and I do that for people uh, serving in custody. Uh, I do inspirational talks in relation to my own journey, but I also do what I call personal responsibility programs. Uh, so everybody always talks about personal development, but actually most people in prison, uh, they've created a learned helplessness. Uh, and what I try to look at is more about what their life plan looks like rather than their, uh, uh, their, their, their sentence plan, uh, and then try to encourage them to see things that they can do for themselves because the truth of the matter is is uh, the system isn't probably going to be able to meet all of their needs and give them what they want. And is that for people who are there for at the end of their sentence or is it people who might be serving 25 years? Yeah, it can be anybody at all, you know, because your life is your life. Yeah, yeah you know, and uh, I was I was recently working in uh, Swinton Hall Prison and there were some young men in there that had like 10, 15 years ahead of them. Uh, but then, I, you know, I remember going into... Uh, uh, Wormwood Scrubs years ago, and, and there was a little sign on the wall that said, don't count the days, make every day count. 
And, uh, and for me, that's kind of where your life plan comes in because whatever it is that you're doing today dictates what your future's going to be, you know. So your time in prison can either be wasted time or useful time. So even somebody who's doing a long sentence, I sort of like really try to get them to see actually you can still do stuff now that's going to support your tomorrow and your future whenever that is. Yeah, so you work both with men and women in prison? Or yeah. just the men? Uh, yeah, I've worked. I've done stuff in women's prisons, but uh, not actual groups in women's prisons. Uh, it's something that I want to get into, and because uh, I know quite a, uh, quite a lot of women that would be really, really qualified to be able to deliver a lot of the work that I do. Uh, but I've delivered inspirational talks down at uh, HMP Send, uh, and uh, yeah, and it was really, really well received because actually the story is very much linked to whether you're male or female. So, you know, the consequences and the reality of your life might be a bit different, but actually the feelings and the emotions and everything else with it are universal. Yeah. So you work with the people inside the prisons on the one hand, but then you work on the staff as well and within the Ministry of Justice and with the sort of leaders there. Yeah, yeah so uh, a lot of the stuff I do is always about human-to-human relationships. Yeah, so, uh, you know, so I do work with uh, prison officers, uh, and a lot of stuff I do with prison officers is how they can better build a human-to-human relationship with those they support about and care with. And um, what I always say to prison officers, I say, look, when you wake up in the morning, you wake up as a human being, yeah, you then put on your uniform, you go through the gate, you get your keys, you become a prison officer. So when somebody wakes up in their bed in the morning in a prison cell, they wake up as a human being. They then put on their life, their identity, their sentence, the door opens and the two shall meet. Yeah, But the one thing you both got in common is that both are human beings. Uh, and what I try to do with uh, prison officers, I try to let them see that actually you can show the person behind the uniform because most people in prison will just see the uniform, yeah. which is a statement of the system that has usually let them down their whole life. Um, and I sort of talk about actually that you can still share personal stuff about yourself without breaking any sort of like professional yeah. boundaries. They can get very nervous about that, can't they? And Absolutely. I know that a lot of them, I remember working in some prisons and they... Uh, there was a big debate going on about whether their first names were used or whether it was sort of uh, Miss whoever or Mr whoever as a staff member. And some officers were like, no, I do not want these people calling me by my first name. Yeah. It was really interesting watching them yeah. talk about that. I've actually, I've actually seen that firsthand. It was, uh, I, I was working with, uh, I went to do some stuff in Grendon. Uh, and I walked into a, a staff room and there was an officer in there who went, oh, he said, I've met you before, Giff, and I'll meet you down at Bullingdon. Um, and then he had to go through a massive transition from Bullingdon to Grendon, and he really struggled with having to kind of share his first name because right. it wasn't first name terms. It wasn't, it wasn't done in, in his previous prison. Also as well with uh, uh, men being able to come into the office, be able to walk around any part of the office to get what it was that they were needed, whereas in his prison it was a line. You didn't step over that line. Um, so, yeah, so it can be quite difficult with prison, but it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's a, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, a learned narrative. Yeah, and how would then the officers respond to you sort of saying that about did you get a bit of a... Yeah, right. Or a, well, you know, I, how I, were they? I, I do a programme which is called The Art of Communication. Yeah. Okay, uh, and, and I do stuff about relationship building. And for me, like, any relationship starts with rapport. Yeah, and then you've got what I call test and deliver. Yeah, once you kind of start to like someone through rapport, you test the relationship. When it delivers, it strengthens. Uh, so what I do is I kind of do a thing with them where I just I just ask them questions, yeah, and they're just random questions about sport, holidays, stuff like that, anything, and and I kind of really kind of get to know them. And I said, but the truth of the matter is, I know you better now, and I feel connected with you. 
I don't know where your children go to school. I don't know where you live. I don't know what city you're from, you know. So there are ways that you can have conversations without sharing other sorts of stuff. And that's that human connection side. Yeah. And how did you become so emotionally intelligent? (laughs) Because I know you've sort of learned a lot and you've gone on courses and whatever, but... Yeah, it takes a certain amount of emotional intelligence to sort of put all those bits together. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. I, I, I suppose, did I say fortunate? <laughs> uh, so I started to kind of, without uh, um, like the rest of the story, but um, I, I kind of really started to look at who I was in 2001. Um, and in 2001, you know, I'd, I'd been a dependent heroin user for years, I spent eight years of my life in prison. I've come through the children care system. I've been secure units. You know, you know, everything that could go wrong went wrong, and I kind of realised, you know, that I I I needed to do something different. Yeah, everybody used to say to me, "Oh, you need to, you need to change," but I was like, "But change into what?" Um, so yeah, so I started to go through a bit of a therapeutic process. Um, but if you kind of think about trauma, my trauma was so big and and so large that it took a long time for me to be able to break it all down. So my therapeutic journey from when I first started to look at myself to when I'd done my shift and change was nearly six years. And within that time, I went to eight different treatment programs. Uh, I've done psychotherapy. I've done acceptance and commitment therapy. Right. Uh, I, I experimented with the 12 steps. I've done uh, humanistic counselling. You name it, I did it. Uh, so I suppose, really, I learnt so much from all of that experience that it just kind of gave me a real awareness uh, and also because I've worked in lots of different therapeutic groups I started to understand uh, stand people you know and, and and archetypes and stuff like that you know because everybody's always a little bit similar and you can kind of see the behaviors and yeah, I suppose I was fortunate to get something from being unfortunate. <laughs> and so obviously somewhere in a so first of all actually the therapeutic change or sort of that moment that you said happened in 2001 where did that take place and how did it dawn on you was it like a sort of light bulb moment where you're like right this has to stop or uh so uh, so, so it was in 2000 so it was just before that and i was in winchester prison uh, i just got remanded and i was coming off heroin crack alcohol and benzos yeah so I call it like a physical rock bottom. And uh, and I remember seeing myself in the mirror and I, was, I, was, I had abscesses. I, I just looked, I looked better. And I just knew something had to change, but I, I didn't know what that kind of was. Um, and then being me, I thought like, I just need to work the system and see like if I can. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So everybody started telling me about these uh, uh, these 12 step programs that they've got in prisons. Yeah. So uh, so what I did is in my head, I like thought to myself, because I've just got a four year sentence in. It was on the old rules. So you used to get parole. So it was, you had to do two years, eight months if you didn't get parole. So I thought to myself, right, I'll go on this treatment program. Yeah. Um, and uh, it might help me get some parole. Yeah. And then the other part of my head was like, if I can get a handle on the gear, when I get out, I can just sell it and not use it. Yeah. Right. So that was my whole idea for going into the That was your program. life plan. That was my <laughs> life plan. Yeah. So uh, so I, when, when people say, oh, you need to go into fruit treatment for you. Yeah. I'll say, I don't care why you go in there. Just go in there. You might hear something. Um, yeah. And I, and I remember sort of like I went into this uh, treatment program. It was in Coldly Prison. And I hadn't ever seen what change looked like. Uh, and I remember this bloke came in one day and he was doing a talk. They said, oh, you need to listen to this fella talk, Giffen. And I went in and I looked at him and I just looked at him and thought, what do you know about me, mate? What do you know about my life? And then he started to share his story. And when he shared his story, yeah, I, I kind of identified with his life. 
And then what he did, he then talked about this new life and he talked about like, that he had a job, he had a flat on the King's Road, he had a driving licence, well. he had a family, yeah, he went on holidays. He had, yeah. Yeah. And I remember my jaw just hitting the floor because I didn't think anything like that was possible because everybody I knew were in exactly the same pattern. So on that day, he kind of like gave me some hope, yeah. Um, and I was working with an IP prisoner recently and he said to me, he heard the same story from me and he said, you gave me hope, Geffen. He said, do you know what hope stands for? I said, no, what? He went... Hearing other people's experiences. Oh, I thought it was brilliant. Jamie, his name is as well. I always said, I'll always give credit to you that, Jamie, because <laughs> yeah. I think it's brilliant. And that's exactly what that fella did on that day. Yeah. So I went in there for one reason, but when I was there, I heard something and I just thought, no, there's another way. But like you say, I was so damaged, so traumatized that it was going to be a long journey for me to be able to get to that point. And were there a few other times, you know, was it a sort of conglomeration of different things that you then pieced together? Because I suppose in a way it's a real success story and you are a real success story of all those courses and whatever happened to you in prison. I know there would have been some incredibly negative experiences, but well, something worked. Somewhere. Something worked <laughs> Something worked for me. But if we look on a system base, I, I was seen as a failure a lot of the time because I only successfully completed one programme. Yeah, I always sabotaged and left. I learnt stuff, but I always sabotaged and left. And what I kind of always explained is every single programme or every single intervention I went on was like a piece of a jigsaw, yeah, until I got to that point in 2006 where the jigsaw was a picture that I could see and I knew what it was I had to do. Um, but with a service, if I don't complete that service, then it's seen as a failure, yeah, because, you know, and and so I, I, I struggle with sort of like when they talk about sort of like timelines for people to change and we've got this amount of time, blah, blah, blah. And I always think about the way I explain my journey is a bit like the, the story of the bamboo, yeah? Okay, so with the bamboo seed, you plant the bamboo seeds, yeah, uh, and then you won't see nothing for five years, yeah? But what happens is that has to be fed and nurtured every day, yeah? That's their interventions every single day. After five years, it will come out of the ground and it will grow a metre a day. Yeah, and that's a bit like what my life was like. It was like, you know, nobody could see anything on the surface that was happening, but there was lots of stuff underneath. Yeah, until I got to that point in 2006 and my life just catapulted and changed. Going back again, how many offences, if you like, and how many times have you been in prison just to get an idea of... I had 56 offences and 18 convictions. Right. I spent eight years behind the prison wall in total. I got my first custodial sentence when I was 14 years of age. Uh, so I was in children's social care at the time. Uh, and it was just, again, everything, my behaviour was a response to my trauma. But what they did was they kept punishing and criminalising my behaviour. Um, and what it was back in them days, you had to be 14 before you get a custodial sentence. Uh, and it was the old detention centres. And I actually went to send. Yeah, so it's, okay. it was quite emotional when I went to do the talking so send, scene. which is now a women's prison, but then it was um, a detention, detention centre for young centre. boys. Yeah, and 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 the place was brutal. The the place was absolutely. It was it was called short sharp shock. We're going to scare you straight, you know. And uh, and the, the day of walking into that prison is just imprinted on my mind. You know, I remember fully grown men just screaming at me, shouting at me. I was stripped naked, nothing on, just given a card with a number M double three six eight one Jones. You know, um, they, they were telling me I'd let down my family, my community. They didn't even know that I was in children's homes, you know. And uh, and then I was just thrown into a cell. And uh, and I can remember that night, I was like lying on my bed and I put a blanket over my head and I literally cried myself to sleep. Uh, and I wanted somebody, just anybody, to come and take me away. And no one came. 
So, and I didn't get any visits through that sentence as well. And and what I explained then is like something inside of me broke, and uh, and and what what that means is like what when it broke, something inside of me said, I was never going to trust another living soul. The only the person I could depend upon was me, and I'm no longer going to play your game. And from that point onwards, I just thought I just rebelled, and I just I just do everything by what I believe is right for my own survival. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that anyone anywhere can think that that's a good way to yeah. make someone comply yeah. and make their behavior better. I mean, it's literally just, it's one of those things about doing this podcast, actually you hear story after story and you just think, what, who came up with that idea? <laughs> you know, I mean, really. Yeah, it's, and, and it's mad. And, and the thing is, because I, 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 I didn't actually realize how young I was until my own son turned 14. Yeah, but that was and, hard. Yeah, when he turned 14... And I realised then when I was when looking at him, this is when they locked me up. It was then that I started to realise just what it was that my childhood had been like because you just you just experience it as your childhood. It's just, you know, people used to say to me, they used to say, why do you take drugs? I used to go, I just like them. And I go, what was your childhood? I'm like, oh, I go, it's all right, because it was just my childhood. Yeah. I didn't know anything else. No. didn't know anything else. So how do you sort of find it now going back into the prisons? Because, you know, you're used to going back into the prisons and all the rest of it, but... There must be times when you are like thrown back to that place or there's an officer says something and you're like, oh my God, I just, you know, because the system, the system is so many things. It's wonderful. It's good. It's horrific. It's bad. It's sort of negligible at times. You know, it's everything, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's often why many of us love working in it because it's such a rich tapestry of, of everything. But uh, do you not sometimes just want to bang your head against the wall and go, I need to get away from this, actually. My whole life has been dominated by these dysfunctional systems and actually I need to go and sit in a meadow of daisies and sort of, you know. Because the funny thing about my journey as well was, it's funny because like I said, I've done my shift and change in, in, in 2006 and uh, and I had no desire to go anywhere near, you know, so lots of people were going to work in substance misuse, criminal. I had no, I'd no desire to go and want to do that, and uh, and and I ended up doing some volunteering, taking young people sailing. Uh, so I kind of went into youth work, uh, and and I've done that for over eight years, and and you know, and I can remember during that time as well, during that eight years, we had to do some stuff at Portsmouth City Council linked to Winchester Prison. Um, so I was about five years post my change, and I remember going into Winchester Prison, which is a prison that I first went into when I was 15 years of age, so it's a prison that I know really well. And I can just remember turning cold walking in there and just thinking there's no way I can work in one of these places. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, and, yeah, and, and it's funny because even when I set up Unlocking Potential, I had no desire to go and work in prisons. It, it wasn't part of what it was doing. I just wanted to train up professionals about trying to support some of the most hardest people to reach in society. And it just kind of like happened by chance. Yeah. Uh, uh, but what I feel is, is that eight years was a really good space for me because it means now when I go into prison, I'm, I'm a long way away from where that trauma was. But because I've also got a very good professional understanding from working in the professional field for as long as I did, I kind of have a bit of a balance. I'll see it from both sides. Um, but yeah, and 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 I remember I used to, this is why I went into work. I remember when I used to manage services, I'm wearing services of staff teams of 40 and, and I used to get the staff and not not none of them really knew my past, only my managers did. I'd get the staff and they'd be like moaning about service users. When I used to listen to them, I used to think, do you know what? You're not right, but you're also not wrong. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then I'd have a client that wanted to complain about their staff member and I'd be listening to them. And when I listen to them, I'd go, you know what? You're not right, 
but you're not wrong. The answer's somewhere in the middle. And I see the same in the prison system. Do you know, it's like, you know, sometimes I will see prison officers and I'll say, this is this 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 is down to your behaviour or what it is that you're doing. Yeah, do you know, the, you know, the, this this is where the reaction's coming from. But I also see it with people in prison as well. Do you know, is sometimes, you know, they're blaming everybody else, but I'm like, actually a lot of what's happening to you at this moment in time is also down to how you're choosing to respond as well. So I think so so that's the thing. So I bang my head against the wall, but it's from both sides. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Sides. And often I think people forget, don't they, that some of the staff members and some of the officers have been at school yep. with some of the people who are serving time inside the prisons. They yep. might be from the same estates. Yep. You know, it's um, especially in the sort of northern, more rural areas and small communities. Yep. Um, so actually the only thing that sort of separates us often is our clothes. Our clothes. Um, yeah, yeah. As yeah. opposed to anything else. But um, so if you were made Governor Gethin... <laughs> and you were, I bet you've thought about this, I've thought about this, and you were in charge of a prison. Yeah. What would the prison sort of look like? Because I think it's really important um, in this in this podcast, and we, I always try, you know, try and come up with solutions because, you know, we can all talk about sort of how things are wrong and um, and we the problems are well rehearsed, aren't they? Yeah. So, so what would a good prison look like under your leadership? So I've, it, it, it would definitely be a real community, yeah, a real community. So now when they say that thing, it, it doesn't take a family to take up a child, it takes a whole village. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I kind of believe that, yeah. So so what it is is if I, I've worked with children and families for years, yeah. Um, and the truth of the matter is, is when you've got a very dysfunctional child, yeah, it's usually because you've got dysfunctional fat parents, yeah. And whenever I used to do work, I didn't used to do that much work with a child. Yeah, I'd just take them out for ice cream and skim the stones and stuff <laughs> That's like that. That's easy, isn't it? Yeah, I'd, I'd do the work with the parents, yeah. And when they started to shift and change their behaviour, all of a sudden little Johnny's a lot more rounded and he's going to school and everything like that, you know. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of the work that I'd be doing would be very much in relation to the staff. Um, but it would be it'd be the whole of the staff, so it's everybody's responsibility, not just the prison officers, yeah, you know, but everybody that works within that prison of being part of that community. But also as well when they talk about sort of like a rehabilitative culture, yeah, they've been talking about it for, for, for kind of years. And for me, environment is massively important, you know, and, uh, and you know, and, and, and I'd sort of like, I'd give ownership to the, the the people in prison and the staff, you know, what 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 do you want this community to look like? You know, what what how how can we make this somewhere where you wake up in the morning and you're as happy as you can be yeah, yeah. to kind of be here? Do you know, so so yeah, so it'd be a, a real community feel, and 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 also as well uh, a prison where people really listen. Yeah, do you know, because I've, I've done Twitter about it the other day, you know, because most people listen to respond rather than listen to understand. Yeah. And uh, and that's where the clash is a lot of the time because people are not hearing each other. Um, so, yeah, so I'd like have a, I'd, I'd have a really community-based prison where sort of like, you know, uh, that, 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 that there's a real high levels of communication across the estate. Um, but also as well within that as well is, you know, because I also see, especially in prisons, yeah, they go, oh, we got not got, haven't got enough resource, yeah, we haven't got the manpower, we haven't got what we need. And I'm like... You've got like 580 men sat behind a door. Yeah, that 580 men have got some real good high skills. Yeah, you just need to understand what they are. Um, I'll give you a little thing on this, yeah, because I always talk about transferable skills. So I've got a leadership and management qualification. Yeah, but I always say, but I was always a leader. When I was using children's homes, I used to get kicked out of children's homes for leading kids astray. 
Yeah, it doesn't matter if you lead somebody left or you lead somebody right. It's all about influence. Yeah, and getting somebody to understand your idea. Blah blah blah. And prison is full of leaders. Yeah, you know, we just don't nurture it well enough, you know. And then you'll have other people in prison, you know, that might be uh, have had trades before. You know, they were carpenters, but you know, and and they can teach other prisoners their trades. You know, so so yeah, so it, so, so so everybody feels. It's their prison. It's part of their prison. And what about um, the staff? Because I, you know, the amount of prisons I've been in where there isn't really a staff room. You know, there's nowhere for anyone to escape, and you know, they're difficult places to be in. So you really need that lunch break. And I know some people who know the system might laugh, going, "Lunch break? You're always running around because there's a crisis and there's alarm bell going. You know, you'd never get that time." But you know, so there's pay, the staff development, staff training. So what would what would you do around training, for example? Because the training in this country is, yeah, tr- I think, yeah, train- not very good. Yeah, I was going to say pants. <laughs> okay, you said it. Gethin said it's pants. <laughs> it's pants. Yeah, um, I've, 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 I've had this conversation with you before. Is, is you know, is is one thing that's really lacking in the prison system is staff supervision. You know, prison officers just don't get the supervision, and that's that space of being able to kind of talk about. It, you know, is uh, whenever I've managed staff teams before, you know, we we we, we used to do uh, an hour and a half supervision at least once a month, best practice, six weeks at the very longest. You know, and and the first thing we'd always do is we do do a thing which is called temperature temperature taking. Yeah, so just how are you? Yeah, how's life for you? Because people got life outside of prison as well. Um, and then what the second part would be about is like what's going well. And what's going not so well, yeah. Um, and and from that, that's when you kind of then see where the the personal development stuff comes in, whether that's for themselves or whether that's that you see. Oh, actually, they got a real skill here. They can help and teach some of the other staff that are maybe not as good in this area, you know. So it's that other sort of thing as well. People always talk about money. There's not enough money, but actually, they don't see the assets that are sat before them. You know, so actually, you know, if if you if you had a much better understanding of who your staff team are then actually, you know, you might have some real good individuals there that can actually train and develop and support other staff that, that you don't actually need to get other people. Well, exactly. So maybe like older officers who've, you know, done a lot of um, a lot of years in the service, talking to younger officers about how to avoid burnout and how to look for the signs before you get to the point where you have to be signed off sick because, you know, burnout's a huge problem in the service, isn't it? You know, you can completely understand why as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and I've, I've done some training. So there, there was a, an initiative which was brought in by Rory Stewart uh, and I was doing some uh, development with some older staff and it was that sort of stuff around the, a mentorship. Uh, so they were training up all of these staff about how they could be sort of mentors to newer staff and then they were being sent out to prisons just to watch what was going on in the landing and then support and advise and, and, and give give what's needed. Uh, but the trouble is is, is they, they, they don't invest enough into it. They don't invest enough into it. But I went to another prison one time and it was with, with a new, new cohort of uh, prison officers. It was in a private prison. Um, and then I remember talking and I always tried to get to know some of the officers that were in there and there was one officer in there who was actually a care leaver. Yeah, I was a care leaver myself, you know, I understand. And, and I said, I said, why did you come to this prison? He went, he went, do you know what? He goes, I've seen so many people that have come through the care system that have either gone to drugs, they've gone to prison and blah, 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 you know. And, and I just wanted to come and see if I can help and make a difference, you know. And I just thought, what a great officer to have as a care leaver <laughs> uh, lead, you know, and, and create some initiatives. Um, and then there was another gentleman there and, and he was an ex-veteran. 
Yeah, uh, and he had had some uh, uh, low-level PTSD stuff as well, so he kind of understood all of that. And we know as well, prisoners got lots of extra veterans in. You know, who suffer from PTSD. You got you got veterans locking up ex-veterans. You know, and I'm just thinking, you know, these people could do so much good. Yeah, if you just sort of like invested a bit of time in them. Yeah, and in Gethin's prison, would it be important for you to know who you had in there? Um, what they're in for, you know, I suppose what I'm trying to guess at is um, data, right? Because I'm a big one for understanding data, because how are you meant to create policy, rules, regulations, even draw up legislation if you don't have the data? And certainly we know from the Ministry of Justice that data is often either not there or sketchy at best. Yeah. Yeah. So would it be important for you to have the data of the people you have in your prison so that you could you know, create the best regime and the best environment possible. Yeah, it's it's funny, actually, why why you say that, because I struggle with all of that sort of stuff. (laughs) I do. I won't lie to you, yeah. Yeah, because I I like people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it's funny, actually, because I remember, like, my first manager, and I probably learnt a lot from my first manager, and I remember it it was a Friday, yeah, and I was just sat at a computer, uh, and he went, what are you doing? And I went, oh, I'm just looking for some stuff to do, blah, blah, blah. And he went, he said, you finished all your work? And I went, yeah. He said, go home then. I said, what do you mean go home? He said, look, if you guys, I'll put, you're, you're here to work 37 hours a week. He said, but if you can do that 37 hours in 30 hours, do it in 30 hours. He said, if you can't do it in 37 hours and then you're asking for overtime at all, well, let's have a conversation. I went, that's a lot of trust you're giving people. Bruce, he went, listen, he said, I trust everybody when they come in. Yeah, it's your trust to lose. Yeah, and then we'll have the conversation. And I just thought that was brilliant. And that's kind of how I use when I've done with my staff teams. But I also think that's the same with you do it with, with prisoners as well. Yeah. So I met a bloke in um in Warren Hill. I don't know if you know about Warren Hill, but it's a progressive unit for sort of like people who are trapped in the system. There's an IPP in there and it he was about eight years over tariff. Yeah. And I was I was chatting to him and everything like that. And uh and it, and I was like, what do you think of it? And yeah, yeah, it goes weird. Probably weird here. Because yeah, they, they have got a rehab culture there. It's really good. It goes, yeah. It's really weird here. It goes, uh, yeah, I goes, uh, I and I said, what do you mean? He went, he went, he went well, when, when I got here, he went, they gave me my enhanced. Oh, right, yeah, the enhanced yeah, status. Yeah, 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 my enhanced status. He said, I've never had enhanced. I went, well, you've been away eight years and you've never been enhanced. And he went, no. And he went, well, they, 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 they gave it to me and they said, it's yours to lose. Yeah. And I went, okay. I said, how long you had it? He said, nearly a year. Yeah. Amazing. And so, so what it was, they made a decision not taking no notice of all of that other stuff. Yeah, you have to have something, something to lose. And yeah. if you've got nothing to lose, what's what yeah. is, what's the incentive? What's the incentive? Yeah. So uh, yes, and you know, and and I, I also had another thing when I've done like my leadership stuff as well. You know, and I remember at the end of my uh, course, I read that uh, sixty second manager. Have you ever read that, read that sixty second manager? No. And it's got like a little paragraph in it. It says, uh, uh, "Catch your staff team doing something right." They like the feeling produced and they'll try to get caught doing more right. Yeah. And I thought that's no different to people. Yeah. yeah. Do you know, most people in prison are used to being caught doing something wrong. Yeah. They're usually treated by what it is that they've done in the past. And for me, I'm that sort of person where I accept who it is that I see there. I'll have an honest conversation, eyeball to eyeball. This, 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 is, this is the world that you're moving into. This is what this prison is about. This is what I'd like from you this is what you'll get from us and i'll hold my side of the road there yeah and you can have a really really productive time in this prison the choice is yours Mm. you know and uh yeah so when you were in prison was 
I presume that was before sort of rehab culture or that term was banded around because what do you make of rehab culture from what you've seen now? I have my own opinions, but I'd be interested to hear what you think about it. Well, it's it's, it's sketchy. Right. <laughs> it's sketchy and different prisons have different uh, different views on what it kind of looks like. Uh, but what I'd say as well, a lot of prisons will, uh, will struggle because they don't actually understand what it means. Yeah, in my view. Uh, I always think of like rehab culture as being uh, a bit like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. yeah. So the first bit is about your basic needs, the environment, making the environment look good. And I remember one prison officer, I went to visit a prison, and I won't say what one it was, I'm not that sort of person, but I went there, and 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 they said, oh, yeah, we're thinking of making this wing into a, a rehab culture wing, yeah? Do you know, what do you think we should do? Yeah. Isn't the whole prison meant to be rehab culture? Uh, well, on those well, anyway, <laughs> they, they was doing it wing by wing, but okay. but uh, but then they they, they and, and I can't they uh, they can't we don't know what to make it look like. I said, well, I said, tell you what, I said, I said if it was your brother that was living on this wing, what would you like your brother to see this wing look like? Oh yeah, I never thought of it like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he goes, and he goes, what, what about the culture sort of stuff? Do you know what I mean? And and I said the same sort of thing. I said if your brother was on this wing. How would you like your brother to be treated yeah. by the or staff? If you were on this way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I think it uh, th- that still comes down to you know, so you know, like you say, if, uh, 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 and I will name him because Warren Hill is. If you ever get the opportunity to visit Warren Hill, go and do it. It's it's, it's amazing. Uh, but they, you know, it's it's an adult state, but they don't wear they don't wear uh, white shirts. They all wear polo shirts up there. Okay. It's got a real community feel. Uh, they got a little place in there which is called like the village. Yeah, and they got like a barber shop there, and they got a canteen down there, where they can buy coffee and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and you can also have sometimes uh, a privileged visit; to, to your visitors can come down to the village okay. as well. And is it an open prison? Closed prison. Oh, closed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting actually when I went there because uh, that was the prison I was in when I turned twenty-one. Uh, and then, like x amount of years later, on they're training like the prison officers. <laughs> strange, really strange, <laughs> really strange. But yeah, but and uh, 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 but it's funny because I was trying to teach the prisoners, prison officers there, to do less. Yeah, <laughs> trying to get them to do less to, because they've been so institutionalised. Um, but yeah, but it was and and the, it, the, you walk onto the wings and they're all cooking together. They got open kitchens. It's it, and for me, that's a rehab culture. And yeah. when I walked around the prison. There was no paper on the floor, yeah, all the grounds were all entirely and clean. People respected the environment they were living in, you know. And what stage of their sentence would the men be in that place? Because I know a lot, you know, the some prisons are in such a bad state, it is difficult to know where to begin, right? So yeah. it would take a prison a very, very long time maybe to get yeah. from where they are to where maybe where Warren Hill is. And- yeah, so, so Warren, Warren Hill is uh, it's a sea cat. Uh, most of them are lifers or IPP sentences that are way over tariff and they're just kind of stuck. So it's a progressive prison to try to move them forward. Um, you know, so, uh, but but when, when I look at the rehab culture, it's always going to be very difficult to have a rehab culture in a, uh, uh, in a local B-cat prison, you know, uh, uh, and part of that as well is is if you look at group dynamics, yeah, that's how I kind of always look at it, you know, because people say, oh, they're so volatile. Um, but that's because if you look at, like, when, 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 when communities build or groups build, yeah, you've got, first of all, the forming, storming, norming and then performing something like that right. yeah um and so what 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 happens because when people come in and out yeah the group dynamics change and then you go through a storming process 
yeah? Uh, that's why Big Brother always works, yeah? Because they take people out, put people in, take people out, so it stays in that storming process because it's interesting to watch. Right. So what happens in local prisons, because you've got a continuous churn of people coming through the courts, yeah? There's never that settled because they would be on remand. They'd be on remand. People so pre-sentence. Yeah, jostling, all of that sort of stuff. So, so, so locals are very, very difficult to manage in that way. Um, but in my view, all CCAT training prisons by now should have a really, really strong rehabilitative culture because people are there for a longer periods of time, you know. And uh, and uh, and I think a lot of the uh, uh, the, the high security estate. You know, is uh, um, you, you, when you kind of go into that, that can be kind of more settled anyway because people just kind of know this, this is where I kind of am. Does that make sense? Yeah, they're yeah. going to be there for longer. They're going to be there for longer. But you know, but then if you if you look at um, so say if you look at uh, Liverpool for instance, which done a really good on their rehab culture uh, under, it's under, been quite a big turnaround, right? Yeah, but then when you look at it, there was a massive financial investment to be able to do that as well. Mm. Uh, but just to push back on that, do you need a massive financial investment to clear up rubbish? No, you don't have to. No, no. Mm. But it's, but it, it's funny as well because I, I was in, uh, it, was a, it was a Scottish prison actually, uh, uh, and I was walking around with the governor uh, and uh, and as he was walking around and he'd walk past prison officers as well, he'd see rubbish on the floor and he'd pick it up. Mm. Yeah, he'd pick it up. Kind of that leading by example, uh, and uh, but the, the you know and and that's the small things that you have to change in a culture. This is everybody's responsibility, you know. Um, but but then but then I think that the culture for me, a rehab culture, always comes down to who the governor is, right? Who the governor is, you know. And you've probably seen it in your time as well, you know. Is I've seen some amazing prisons that are doing really really well because they've got a really great governor. That governor leaves because they're really good, so they send them off to somebody else. Someone else comes in. Yeah. And all of a sudden. Exactly. And I guess it has to filter down, doesn't it, from the governor through the SMT, the senior management team. I'm interested to hear from your point of view and your leadership work. How essential to the running of a prison is an SMT? Or, I mean, I know they are quite essential to the running of the prison. What I mean is how influential are they over the culture and what goes on in the prison? Um, I think, so if we look at, um, so when I do stuff with prison officers and, uh, 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 prisoners, yeah, uh, I will talk about the them and us narrative, yeah, it's about breaking down the them and us, yeah, but you've also got the same them and us between the frontline staff and the SMT, right. yeah, and it's within any kind of senior leadership and management team, yeah, it's because, uh, what happens is see SMT sit wherever they sit. They look at a problem and they go, no, oh, no, this is how we're going to fix it. And then they're all of a sudden these people on the front line are getting told, wait, no, you're no longer doing this. Now you've got to do this. Yeah, um, no understanding of why, what, what, what's the reason, blah, blah, blah. They're just getting told they've got to do something. So it kind of makes that uh, tougher. Um, it's funny. I, I always kind of, uh, and I see this a lot in prisons. I see a lot of it. A lot, lot of leaders do this. I always think about, you know, no, like when you've got a speedboat and you've got the uh, the old banana hanging on the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is the. Yeah, imagine you've got leaders. Yeah, they're driving the speedboat. Yeah, and then all of a sudden they think, oh, I'm going to turn left. So they just turn left. Yeah, and then when they look around, yeah, all of their staff team are all like flying about in this wake. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't know where they're coming or going. Yeah. And, and I've said it to loads of senior managers. It's all about communication. It's like you know. Actually, if, if you think I'm going to turn left here, you should have somebody say, yeah, yeah, go, 
Yeah, I'm just about to turn left in a few minutes, yeah, however long it is. Can you let them know behind that I'm going to turn left? They need to hold on tighter because there's going to be a change coming. Yeah, that's okay. I'll let them know, yeah. And then they're all going to, like, squeeze their thighs. They're going to hold on really tight, yeah. When they go around, probably none of them's falling off or maybe just one or two. But do they not have (laughs) officers? I mean, because, you know, it would seem like they should have some people who work on the wing sitting on the SMT. Yeah. Well... Yeah, I th- I th- so, so some things I think, because yeah, years ago when I was in jail, you used to have the, the, the SO and the PO, you know. And, mm, uh, senior officer. Senior and officer and principal officer. Principal officer. Yeah, do you know, and, and that used to kind of work quite well. They they kind of took that away now. So you've now just got the uh, the CM, haven't you, they call them now. Custodial manager. manager. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think they feed into the SMT, but... You know, you, if you go into a prison sometimes and you see the CM and then they're also like Oscar one and they're just like being run ragged. Yeah. yeah so it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it is a massive communication issue, but it, but it's also about, I think, leaders understanding who it is that they need to speak to before they make decisions. Uh, so uh, uh, there, there's a, um, uh, what do they call him now? Regional Probation Director, uh, RPD. Bloke called Gabriel, yeah, and uh, and I really like Gabriel, um, and I remember talking to Gabriel once, and uh, and he kind of said he went, you know, he said to me, he said, uh, he said the people who have got the answers to my problems, are my probation officers, yeah, and we need to listen to the probation officers more, yeah, and I thought you're so right, yeah, and it reminds me of the Timpsons model with the upside down bit, yeah, where, yeah. where actually they see actually the people that are managing their shops are the people that really know what it is that's needed for their individual shops. And I think the SMTs within the prison system and a lot of, a lot of the rest of the system as well, social care system or lots of the systems, they're the same thing. You've got SMTs that are making decisions without really understanding how that's impacting the people on the front line. Right. Does it concern you about the sort of the levels of um, staffing? And there was a recent report out, wasn't there, about the number of staff that are leaving, having not spent very much time in the system. And I don't know whether you've got a better picture of it. I I don't really know um, sort of how critical things are. But, you know, with a lot of the older officers and the jailcraft leaving, you know, it was a problem a few years ago, but I think now it's even worse, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think uh, think what it is now is is what they're saying now is you're seen as a long-term prison officer if you've got two years under your belt. Oh, wow. You know, and, uh, and, and you're getting people that are getting... Promoted up to uh, uh, CMs that have been in the system for less than three years, and you know, and 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 yeah, that that's that's worrying on my view. You know, don't get me wrong, there will be some, yeah, that actually are really, really like uh, skilled and able to do that sort of stuff. But uh, but yeah, I, I, it worries me uh, uh, in relation to the uh, uh, the, the, the the immaturity and. Uh, lack of understanding of staff uh but also as well like you say the uh the the, the retention rates yeah of, of yeah. keeping people in the system yeah and, and it worries me because you know it, it's the same as any industry the more older staff that we lose the worse it's going to get because you know with any business you're only as good as the people that work on the shop floor yeah. So I wonder when it gets, you know, what happens when they say we don't have enough staff or will they just crack on like they did in COVID? And actually what it means is that the prisoners will be locked behind their doors for longer because that's usually what happens, isn't it, when there aren't enough staff? Yeah. 
Yeah, and and I think it, it all comes yeah because it's, it's interesting because they're going through a big spending review at the moment. I mean, so we, we, we need know what to, that means. <laughs> brace yourself for more cuts. Brace yourself for more cuts. Yeah. So so my 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 uh, is is funny actually because. Uh, I remember saying this to Wally Stewart. I won't swear on your podcast, though. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I remember. I remember saying that he said, "He said, what, what do you think we should do then, Geffen? Yeah, what do you think?" Yeah, I said, "Well, I said to be honest with you, I said in my view, I said you need to get sort of like prisoners and prison officers together, yeah, because they know." what's needed yeah they know what's needed and I said but what you need to do first of all is say do you know what we messed up yeah I didn't say messed up I swore in front of you <laughs> <Yeah>. right <laughs> okay. be honest yeah we've messed up yeah uh, and then actually you can have kind of like a conversation and an honest conversation what is it we need to kind of fix this and make it better for both sides uh, and I'd kind of do that sort of like you know is is I'd reach out to them older staff that left the system because of everything like that and and kind of to bring them in as like coaching mentorship roles. Yeah. So you actually you're gonna to have to have an extra level of investment, yeah, which is gonna cost you more money because you're gonna to have to pay double. But at least you're gonna have people that have got real experience to train up these newer staff, which actually then may might mean that you retain them. So in the longer term, it's going to save you because it's quite expensive to keep going through the recruitment process, you know. So, so yeah, so that, that 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 would be my answer to it, you know, is, is you know, because then people with them skills are still out there. They're just not in the system. Uh, and we need to maybe find a way how it is that we can draw them back into the system yeah, to and be able to train skills. and develop. Yeah. And what about the um, overcrowding problem? Do you think, I know certainly in the women's prisons, there's a big cohort of people that could be let out and they'd be no danger to society. Um, are there sort of equal numbers of men, do you think, that you've seen that you're like, look, you just shouldn't be here? Yeah. You're not a danger to anyone out there. Yes, you might have broken a law, but sort of comes back to the community sentences being used properly. I'm 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 going to kind of quote uh, John Podmore on this one oh, yeah? yeah, on a blog that he did, and he he got it absolutely bang on. Yeah, and and what he said in this in this uh, podcast uh, in this blog was that seventy percent of people in prison don't need to be in prison. Yeah, and we should only be locking up people we're scared of, not people we're mad at. Yeah. Yeah. The truth of the matter is, is we're locking up some of the poorest, the most vulnerable people in society that are just responding through trauma. You know, I'll give you an example of it from my own experience. Yeah. So I first went into prisons in the 80s. Yeah. And back in the 80s, yeah, 80% of the prison population were what I call career criminals. Yeah. They were armed robbers. They were professional burglars, fools, whatever it kind of was. Only 20% of the prison state at that time had a drug, alcohol, mental health problem. But also as well, back in them days, yeah, heroin, yeah, was not allowed. Yeah, if you were seen to be taking heroin in prison, you was as low as the sex offenders' glasses and everything else. It was unacceptable. But then when I said to you before about sometimes the prison the system does the wrong thing for the right reason. Yeah, so in the early nineties, they brought in the MDTs, mm, mandatory <coughs> drug, mandatory testing. drug testing. So what happened overnight? Because cannabis was quite rife in prison. Yeah, but overnight. We as prisoners worked out that actually cannabis stays in you for 28 days, opiates only stays in you for 72 hours. Overnight, heroin became acceptable in prison, yeah? And then what happened was people then started to get a taste for the heroin, see the financial rewards that came from it, and they took it from prisons to the communities. And that's why there was the big explosion in the uh, in the 90s. This is in my view, yeah, uh, from living in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then what it is now is if you look at the prison system today, 
Only 20% of the prison system are what I would call career criminals. 80% of the prison system are people who have got drug, alcohol, mental health issues. It's completely shifted the other way. And what these people need is they need they need therapeutic residential trauma care. Yeah, they don't need prison. Yeah, do you know? And when I kind of hear about they're building 20,000 new prison places, it just makes me ill. Yeah, mm-hmm. it just makes me sick because I'm thinking that all of that money, yeah, you should be investing in communities yeah communities that are feeding the prison system because at the moment you're just looking at the problem here what you need to be looking is upstream here yeah well exactly and also like i often think that you know yes i can be a critic of the justice system but i hope a sort of positive critic in many ways but it does seem to me that when health goes wrong or housing goes wrong when everything goes wrong it becomes a criminal justice problem so therefore yeah. it comes out of the budget of uh, the criminal justice system, which sort of doesn't really seem fair because then it was, you know, there's a weird perverse incentive from the health departments and the housing departments and whatever other departments to kick that human being into another bucket because then it's not their budget responsibility. But then, of course, it gets 10 times worse and they come out and they're more of a drain on the health system and the housing system and the everything else. So it's just like this perfect mad storm, storm. of insanity. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. If if you just look at like you know, so I'm a care leaver as well. Yeah, I'm quite passionate about all that sort of stuff. You know, so I always say, you know, is like, uh, you know, I ended up going into the same children's home one mum left. Yeah, so like social services were there from the day I was born, and like you say, my my my, my trauma came out of my behaviour, and then they punished and criminalised the behaviour. Yeah, but care leavers make up one percent of the population of the UK. Just one percent. They make up over forty percent of the young persons prison state. Okay, and over 26% of the adult estate. I believe it's higher in the adult estate, but once you get past 25, you don't have to disclose it. And most people won't disclose it because you're seen as being a troublemaker, yeah, because you've been in the care system and you kind of got a, a label with it. Um, and what that means as a society and as a system, what we do is we see the vulnerability of a child, we take them into the care system, they then respond negatively in their behaviour linked to their trauma, we then punish and criminalise the behaviour and then put them into the next system. And this just continues. It, it, it hasn't changed. You know, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I remember listening to his presentation. I can't remember what state it was, but it was somewhere in America, and it's a bit like what you was talking about. What they were saying, there's only one public dollar. Yeah, we call it a pound. Yeah, one public mm. dollar. Yeah, and what they realised, yeah, was they was looking at building more prisons places. And then they kind of done a bit of research, and they kind of had these things that they called million-dollar blocks. Yeah, so these blocks, yeah, were, were feeding the prison system. So what they did was they joined the resources, yeah, the public health, the, 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 the criminal justice, everything else like that, and put it all together in one pot and invested it into these million-dollar blocks, yeah. And then what happened was then the crime levels started to reduce, and then rather than have to build prisons, they were able to start to close some, you know. Revolutionary. Revolutionary. And, Tackle and that's the root cause. Cause, yeah. Do you know, it's like, <laughs> you know. It? Yeah, you know, you, in my area, we got like Charles Dickens' ward, yeah, which is because Charles Dickens was born there. It's one of the poorest estates, yeah. And, and you know, the majority of people in Winchester Prison will come from that ward, yeah. Just across the road, about a mile away, you've got Baffins, which is a very nice affluent area and everything like that. Very few of them are going into the prisons. You know where the money needs to go. Yeah, it's just about being bold and spending it. Yeah. Do you think it'll ever happen? Because <laughs> I'm forever optimistic. I am right? as well. <laughs> I don't know, maybe maybe we're the insane ones. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, yeah. Well, people, people will say to me, they go, they, they, they go, but what can you do? I go, well, you know, 
I'll just keep on going. Whistling it's, it's, it's the not, wind. Yeah, it's not <laughs> professional it's, it's, whistler. Yeah, but then, I, but then I think about you know what what can one person do? And you know, and I, you know, and not just one person. There's lots of us. Yeah, we're yeah. a collective. But if you think of sort of like uh, Nelson Mandela, yeah, do you know what I mean? He, he kind of he he he, he, he believes so passionately in something around apartheid, yeah, that he wanted to kind of change it. Both those people would say, "What are you going to be able to do?" do you know, yeah. and and by that persistence and. Getting a collective and a voice and a momentum and all that, you know, who knows what would happen. Well, exactly, happen. and better to die trying, right? Yeah. Um, but I wonder whether, you know, if there was a an amnesty on actually building prisons and, you know, surely, I think Texas, didn't they get to the point where there was yeah. just too many prisons or the numbers yeah. were out of control somewhere in America? Because actually, if any minister anywhere at some point said, no, this is the upper limit, then you push the responsibility back into other areas because then people have to think of other ways. It's like we've sort of got caught in this just lazy cycle of, oh, we'll just draw down a few hundred million from the treasury, yeah. smash up a few new prisons. Let's try and hoodwink everyone into thinking that we're going to close, you know, old for new. Yeah, yeah. Believe that when I see it. Um, and it's like motorways, isn't it? You build another motorway, it's going to be filled with cars. I went to visit Elstoke Prison, and Elstoke Prison is a bit one that I've been into, yeah. And then what what I see when I go there, they they just kind of put new buildings in there, and they increase the <laughs> the capacity there. Yeah, okay. you know? no one's going to notice. <laughs> notice that. But I, I have got a solution though for it. Okay. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people, when when I say, because what I say to people, I say, in truth, yeah. When we look at it, it's all related down to poverty. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of it's related down to poverty. So I said there needs to be at least a fifty-year cross-parliamentary plan to reduce poverty within the UK. Fifty-year. Yeah? yeah, at least. They don't do longer than. I know. I know. Four, this, do this, they? Yeah. This, this, this is why, like, you know, I'm, I'm just okay. airy fairy it's the magic, thinking. Magic yeah, yeah. This is just my yeah. airy fairy thinking. So I say, like, okay, fifty-year yeah, 50 cross-party plan. Cross-party plan to reduce poverty within the UK. Yeah, and it also then links as well to that Maslow hierarchy of need. Yeah. So first of all, is like you, you, you make the places fit for purpose. Yeah. Papers that people want to live in. Yeah. That have got all, all of their basic needs being taken care of. Then what you do is you then put in all of the emotional support that them families need to be able to develop and grow because, you know, the the the, the poverty is generational and it's going to take generations to fix. And then people say to me, they say, so how are you going to pay for something? Like that? That's really expensive. And I said, well, use the money on the war on drugs, yeah, because it don't work. Yeah, You spend billions of pounds a year about trying to stop drugs coming into the UK. You fail a business league, blah, blah, blah. You know, the, the truth of the matter is drugs is about supply and demand. It's about supply and demand. Where is the demand? The demand is in the poorest areas because they've got nothing. Yeah, they've got nothing in their life. So actually, if you transfer that money away from there because you're wasting it anyway, and plow it into these communities, yeah, who knows what could happen in fifty years' time? Yeah. Well, should we remain? Forever optimistic, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> I'll always be. A, it's funny because another thing somebody said to me as well, because they, they they say, "Well, what can you do in a year?" And I go, "Well, not a lot, really." Yeah, but I remember hearing this thing when I first went into business, and they said most people they overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in ten. Yeah, but I'm just extending that. I overestimate what I can do in five, but I underestimate what I can do in fifty. So we'll see what happens. Well, next. exactly. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, we keep going, don't we? Because going in and out of these prisons, there's some absolutely unbelievable staff. There's some absolutely unbelievable people who are serving time. And, you know, I'm just absolutely amazed all the time that someone can go into prison like you did, you know, drug dependent on your knees. And then really without very much support at all, 
can do what you did and lots of people are doing that all the time which is just utterly staggering you know if anyone listening has tried to give up chocolate wine <laughs> smoking how hard is it right yeah. it's so hard but then yeah. imagine you know for those of us who've lived privileged lives how difficult that must be if it's you know an addiction you actually really need to survive yeah yeah, 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 absolutely. And and I'll, I'll just kind of end with this one. Another thing I want to get in is, is the word rehabilitation. Yeah, oh, yeah. Do you, do you like that? No. It, it, <laughs> no. It, I, I kind of use it. It works for some people, yeah. So say some, some people who may be like a first-time offender went off the went off the razor. But when I said to you at the beginning, yeah, when people are talking about rehabilitation and change, yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but change into what, yeah? You know, because for me, rehabilitation means make something what it once was, yeah? So if you break your arm, you go to the physio, they do some rehabilitation work and it works again, yeah? But what if you never was, yeah? Then you're talking about a complete shift in identity. So it's not just about breaking a habit. So I had the habit, which is the heroin addict and everything else like that. But I also had to change a whole identity, a whole belief system, my language. Yeah? If you have just spoken to me 15 years ago, I'd have been swearing every other word. Yeah. You know? I had to, you know, I just don't represent anything of what I once was, you know. And for me, rehabilitation is insulting to what it was that yeah. I actually went through. It's you like know? the word resettle, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I often say to people, well, it's not resettling because some of these people have never, never had settled. a settled life. So, and terminology really matters, doesn't it? Yeah. And often if you say to people, what does rehabilitation actually mean? They're like, uh, it's like, no, literally spell it out for me. Yeah. You know, what do you mean by rehabilitating yeah. someone? Yeah. And often people yeah. can't answer it. Yeah, I put on LinkedIn the other day, somebody says, and they said, would you say you're rehabilitated? I said, I said, no. Because the word doesn't mean what I went through. No. It says, you know, yeah, rehabilitated to what? And uh, I don't know if you, uh, there's there's a, a barrister in Scotland called Ian Smith. If you, if you come across him? No. Oh, he's brilliant. He is. I'll have to link you up to him, yeah. Um, but he's disrupting the judicial system, yeah. And he was uh, he was supporting, a, I think it was a 14 or a 15-year-old boy in the Scottish courts. Uh, and the, the, uh, the judge uh, said, uh, he said, look, he said, this boy has had enough chances and he now needs to feel the full force of the law because he's come off the rails. Yeah, And Elian's gone, Your Honour, he said, I really hear what you're saying. He said, but what if there were no rails? Yeah. And that's that's the reality. It's that's so the true, reality. Isn't it? Yeah, it's the reality. The other the other term that really bugs me is um the fact that the justice system is called the criminal justice system because it sort of puts the criminal at the sort of heart of it. Um, and then, of course, you've got the problem of the criminal often having, having been the victim first. And when you say to people, well, you know, the thing is, if people are a victim first and then they become a perpetrator, you know, that's kind of difficult terminology, isn't it? And they're like, oh, yeah, I'd never really mm -hmm. thought that people had vi been victims first. And it's like what you think people just sort of pop out and sort of, you know, behave in that way for no reason. No. You know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? So, you know, I always try my best to try and call it the justice system because yeah. I think the criminal bit needs to drop. No, I, I, think, I, think, I think you bang on with that. I think you bang on. I think another thing to remember as well when you talk about victims yeah, is like, so in truth, yeah, my perpetrator was the system. Yeah, mm. the system found me and let me down my whole life. And then what happened was then when they told me I needed to change and get out, who did they want me to go to? The system, yeah? So that's like trying to get a victim to go to their perpetrator to get the help to fix them, mm. you know? That's so and, interesting. I'd never thought about it in, in that way. Yeah, and, and, and that's a whole mind shift in itself. Because, you know, I, and it's funny, and now I will say it, and I, and I said this to, uh, to, to one of my customers at uh, probation the other day, 
And I said to him the other day, I said, I still mistrust the system. Yeah, I don't trust the system. I said, but what I do trust is individuals that work within it. And that's where my change came from. So I always say it wasn't the system that changed me. It was individuals that worked within it. Mm. And they've done that by developing human-to-human relationships. So all when you say about the work that I do, the work that I do is related to how people treated me. And every person that I can remember that helped and supported me on my journey treated me as a human being. They yeah. just took me for who I was, who they saw in front of them. Yeah. Should we come back and do this podcast again in 20 years' time? And uh... <laughs> <laughs> see where we've got to see, see if we're still whistling into the wind <laughs> um Gethin, yeah. thank you so much it's um brilliant to meet you in person yeah. and uh thank you so much for telling us a bit about your story and um yeah you're a great inspiration to me and many others no thank you it's been a pleasure i appreciate it thank you links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below 